And where you can put that response card when we uh, take our morning offering, you can put that in the offering plate and that will let us know. And if you've got other prayer requests or questions or needs, be sure to put that on the card as well. Also, I just want to alert you to the fact that answered prayers, we pray for uh, people. God does answer prayer, and Jean Thomaso is a living example of that. Why don't you just wave your hand in the back there? She's been absent from us for three months. I didn't even recognize her, but uh, I, I did know her. But uh, we're excited that God answers prayer, and she's thanking everyone who's been praying for during these um, months of uh, treatment. And so we just thank God for, um, for you and for her as well. Also, just some things I want to alert you to that. That Fun Festival Night is one of our Oikos events. For those who have been with us for a number of uh, months now, I guess, you understand what Oikos is. That's your opportunity to reach out to neighbors, family, and friends that might not know the Lord Jesus Christ and invite them to, to hear about Jesus or just be around God's people. This is a great event just to invite them to. So today, be sure after you pick up that brownie or cookie, that very nutritious uh, uh, food that you're going to buy for the, for the youth. Be sure to sign up for a, a great event for, for you. It's for the whole family. Great games, great food uh, to do that as well. Also, I just want to alert you. Um, we announced, oh, the, er- the earliest part of uh, this year or even uh, quite possibly the end of last year is that Scott Duncan was going to be moving on to a new ministry as he uh, believes that God wants him to be involved more in preaching and teaching. And so uh, we had some transition months for that, and he decided this week to make June his last month. And so we're going to be praying for Scott as, as Scott and Tanitha have that transition. And then finally, just to let you know, is that for those who sometimes do both and, you come to this service sometimes, sometimes you go to the second worship service, is we have a new worship leader for our traditional service, and she's actually in this service. So Megan Baldridge, why don't you wave or stand up? Uh, she's right over there. She, uh, um, she's a recent graduate of Cal Baptist University and a degree in music and has had a variety of experiences leading worship, and uh, we're excited to bring her on the team. Um, she uh, is actually coming to both services because sometimes I speak fast and she wants to make sure he gets everything I say. Uh, maybe not quite that. But let's look at the Lord in prayer as we prepare for looking in his word. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for this the privilege of speaking and praising you and singing about how worthy you are. And Father, uh, just looking at your word speaks to how magnificent the work of Jesus Christ on the cross does for us. And Father, I pray as we look in your word and really speak to why he had to come, that you might not take maybe a familiar theme and allow us to be so familiar with us that we don't see the importance of it. Father, uh, guide us as we just learn from you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading about a group of young students, uh, children that actually went to camp, and here was their story. At a summer camp for children, one of the counselors was leading a discussion on the purpose God had for everything he created. They began to find good reasons for clouds and trees and rocks and rivers and animals and just about everything else in nature. Finally, one of the children said, if God had a good purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Um, Just want to make a pitch here. If you want to be in a challenging ministry that changes the lives of people, don't look past our children's ministry because they ask the toughest questions. Why did God create poison ivy? The discussion leader gulped, and as he struggled with the question, one of the other children came to his rescue saying, the reason God made poison ivy is because he wanted us to know there are certain things 
we should keep our cotton-picking hands off. <laughs> this morning I want to talk about a familiar theme. If you've ever been a place like this before, we're going to talk about sin. And someone asked, uh, probably was a child, asked what the pastor had preached about, or the parent asked the, the, the child, they hadn't been in church that day, what did the pastor preach about on Sunday morning? And the child said, we, he preached on sin. What did he say about it? He said he was against it. <laughs> Well, really, as you think about sin, sin is what God is against. But sometimes we take this familiar theme about sin and don't really realize just how awesome and damning it is. And so this morning we begin a new venture into another revelation of God in the New Testament for us to understand if we are to understand who God is and how we are to relate and connect to Him. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Romans. If you know where the New Testament begins, it begins with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We spent a number of weeks in the book of Acts, and now we jump into the book of Romans. And really what we've been doing through a series at the beginning of this year is questions asked and answered. And on that response card, if you've got a question you want us to respond to in a variety of different ways, we post them often on our website. But if, as we go through God's Word, God's Word is to inform us of who He is and who we are and how that's supposed to relate in terms of what life is all about. And as we heard the story of Jesus in the Gospels, and in many ways we heard the history of God's people in the book of Acts, now we really understand through the book of Romans and the rest of the letters of the New Testament the significance of all that we've heard about this person Jesus and how we're supposed to live it out. Romans is an interesting book, and it's interesting in a variety of different ways. It's written um, to a people, this is kind of unique to Paul's writings, to to people he, for the most part, have never met. In, In lieu of many of his other writings, where he had either been the one who planted the church or he had pastored the church for a period of time, uh, this was not a place where he had, he had formed it. He was not the, the church founder. He was not the pastor now left and coming back. And as we even think of how that, that church was formed, we, we really don't even know specifically who was the founding pastor. Uh, some might think it was Peter or Paul, but it was probably neither one of those two. It was probably, which is really the person who always ought to get a credit, it was a, the credit, it was a God thing. It's quite possible that it was formed out of those first believers that came to faith in Christ at Pentecost as the, the message was given out from people of all lands who were visiting Israel at that time and then they kind of migrated to the, the capital Rome and, and as God's people got together they formed churches. It's quite possible though it might have been on the missionary journeys of Paul as he went everywhere and as people came to faith in Christ they migrated to Rome and again they formed a church. But it it came into being because of the grace and mercy and power of God through His Spirit that call people into faith and then into community and form that which God puts together, which is the church. Rome is a significant city in many ways. It was formed in about 753 B.C. and it went to great heights and significance. In fact, it was the major city at the writing of this particular letter. Some estimate that the population was between 1 million and 4 million. I guess who's counting? It was a significant city, not only in terms of its number, but also its populace, because it had all kinds of people. 
It had those who were extremely rich. And then, in fact, many feel that majority of people in that one to four million people might have been slaves or people who were impoverished. It also had some kind of a middle class. It was a place that was filled with splendor and opulence and then squalor. People who had great freedom, more time in their hands than they <laughs> could deal with, and some people who were restricted by the hand of others. And in this backdrop, Paul is writing to a group of people who in largely have never met, though in chapter 16 he, he writes personally to a number of the people in that particular place, out of his heart for them to understand the faith. It's interesting, and we're going to see this even in your outline, but I'll, I'll share it now, is that it wasn't the first letter he wrote, though it's the first letter in the order of books in the New Testament from the, the, the hand of Paul. Paul wrote about 13 letters, as far as we can count rightly, and this is the first one that is placed in the order in the New Testament. It was written probably on his third missionary journey from, from Corinth. He spent about three months in Corinth, probably around 56, 57, 58. And he was writing to a church, interestingly, a little bit different than he wrote most of his letters. Most of his letters he wrote because he had been there and then he got reports that they weren't doing really well. And he, and he wrote a corrective letter. It's like someone knowing about your life and they, they send the advice uh, handwritten. Uh, here's some things you need to deal with. Here's some things you need to, to change. And, and Paul did not write a corrective letter, but he actually wrote a letter that was preventative in nature. In, in many ways, as we think of the role of a parent or a person who takes on the role of a parent or a mentor, in, in many ways, we're in those positions when somebody's going through very difficult times, we're there to, to help them to, to change from what's going wrong to going what is right. But the greater role is to prevent that which could go wrong before it goes wrong. And so that's what Paul does to me. He shares with me, if you'll just get this, then you'll understand God's plan and how to live it out. He knows he's, he's going to get some pushback. And whenever you're involved in teaching, one of the reasons we emphasize small groups or life groups, as John was talking about, is there's an opportunity to dialogue and to debate, to maybe even argue about the Scriptures or struggle with the Scriptures. Paul, as he writes this letter, the style in which he writes, sometimes he's even thinking about the person after he says it or writes it, what's their objection going to be? And so he, he says it and then he defends it. Because he is so passionate that they understand what this life with God is all about. And he takes it from the very beginning, what it takes to begin that life and then to live it out. Not only now, but even in the future. So this morning we begin, and I'm not sure how many weeks we'll take. We might take four or five weeks going through the book of Romans. You could spend years. I think um, there are some pastors who have spent six years in this book every Sunday teaching on the book of Romans. I'll resist that temptation. Um, but we will, we will try to get the highlights of this most important book. And this morning we're going to look at some things we ought to keep our cotton-picking hands off. Because sin is not only that which is morally wrong in the eyes of God, but it's that which is destructive for us. See, God does not arbitrarily say that's right, that's wrong. He recognizes how He has made us. It's that we participate in that which He knows is wrong for us. We are the ones who get hurt most. So God is always a good God, even when we look at His commandments. 
Well, if you have your outlines this morning, I want to say a few things uh, by way of looking at the big picture. We've kind of looked at that already to a certain degree. And then I want to make some initial big ideas or big truth points this morning, particularly as it relates to sin. The importance of Romans. There are many people who have commented about this particular book. Coleridge wrote the most profound book in existence. Uh, That's an amazing statement. There is no greater book of wisdom that is found in all of literature than in the book of Romans. Godet said this, it's the cathedral of the Christian faith. Uh, I have resisted the temptation. Some have asked me to do a slide series on our trip uh, to Cyprus and France and, and Spain. And, and as you go to places in Europe, you recognize there's all kinds of great places of worship that people have built, but I'm resisting that temptation. <laughs> if you want to see those pictures, you can come to my house. But, uh, you know, the cathedral of the Christian faith, this is the 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 beautiful place by which we see the beautiful plan of God. Luther, Martin Luther, who was the instrument by which God used for the the Reformation, he said this epistle is the chief part of the New Testament. He goes on in his comment of the book of Romans, he said this is a book that needs to be read repetitively over and over and over again. Just when you think you got it, read it again because it mines the depths of who God is, who we are, and how we are to live out the life with Him. In terms of just looking at it chronologically, it is important because it is the first in the order of Paul's writings in the New Testament. It's really the foundation by which all of his other writings could be understood in. As you look at great literature, and of course we look at the Word of God as not only great literature, but it's from the hand of God, it's inspired, it's God-breathed, it's authoritative, it's... Uh, and errant. But as you look at it, many times if you want to understand a book, what are some of the repetitive things in it, particularly if it has any length? And sometimes you can look at it just by looking at the key words. Uh, righteousness, faith, law, the word all, and sin, and you could actually also add the word gospel. It each appear at least 60 times in this book. So as you're thinking about it, on Paul's heart and mind, on God's heart and mind, is that we might understand what righteousness is, that we might understand what faith is, that we might understand what the law was given us for, what is all-inclusive in the mind of, of God, and what is important about sin. And this is all under the umbrella of the word gospel. Another way to look at or get a handle on a particular book is, is there a key statement or a key phrase a sentence or a paragraph within the book. And in the book of Romans, actually, there are so many verses that could be underlined. Uh, there are so many verses that you really need to commit to heart and to mind. But if you were to take one passage that kind of summarizes the book or at least highlights the theme of the book, it would be found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And we're going to urge you to, to memorize this passage in the month of June. Paul writes, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." Some have described the book of Romans, if you want a word to describe the book, it's gospel. It's gospel not telling the story of Jesus, but telling the significance of the story of Jesus. What is the good news about the good news? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Some use a singular word here to describe the book of Romans. If you want to understand what the book of Romans is about, if you don't like gospel, use the word salvation. What is Romans about? It's about salvation. Not just the beginning of salvation, but the living it out for everyone who believes. This is not just a story, a message for a few. It's for everyone. 
for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from one person's faith to another person's faith. This is what is to be spread to everyone. And then this very singular statement, as it is written, the just shall live by what? By faith. It's all about determining what governs your life. What do you trust in? What do you rely on? Who is it that has your complete confidence? See, often when we think about faith, we think of faith is that which we agree with intellectually. Well, this, this is true. I think that's reality, and that's not reality. That is a myth, or it's some story that is not be- believable in terms of our mental agreement to the, the reality of the statements. But faith is more than just mental assent. It's that what you are totally relying upon. That's what you are trusting in. Your life has full confidence upon. And as we live out what it means to know God, it's living in such a way that we're trusting completely in Jesus Christ. So just by way of review, this is the greatest book by some in the New Testament in recording the significance of the gospel. For others, it it is a a statement in which we understand the great themes of the Bible, righteousness and faith and sin and the gospel and salvation. Uh, For others, it's it's understanding that it's all about the righteous shall live by faith. But I want to give you one other big picture handle. As we went through the Gospels, and I know I kind of dumped a lot on you during that particular series and tried to give you a handle on every individual book in those particular writings, and in the book of Luke, that was, I meant, 24 chapters. But let me just kind of break down Romans in this way. If you don't want to remember it, and I hope you do remember by some key words, here are some key ways to outline this book. If you want to divide it, not in half, but at least in two sections, In the 16 chapters, the first 11 chapters are all about doctrine. And doctrine is simply a word to understand what are the key truths about the faith that we are to understand. It's the doctrinal section of this book. But doctrine is always immensely practical. And so after the first 11 chapters, then Paul goes on to our duty. In light of what is true about God, then how should we now live? So if you want to give a hand on the book, 11 chapters on doctrine, and then the rest of the book, chapters 12 through 16, on our duty, or duties. But another way to look at it, and this is the letter S, this message is given to you by the letter S. Another way to look at it in terms of the flow of the book is by recognizing that there are themes that are progressive through this particular letter given to us by Paul. The first three chapters, he emphasizes the reality of sin. And this is the beginning. And I've said to you many, many times, no one ever becomes into a true relationship with a living God unless they desperately know they need one. You have to admit your need if ever you're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And what is your need? Your need and my need is to have something done with our sin, that which separates us from God. And so Paul begins with that. He begins with hammering at our heart and our mind, convincing us of our need because we are separated from God and our sin is horrific in his eyes. 
And then he moves on in chapters 4 through 5. And, and now he speaks, well, then how do we get rid of it? How, how do we come into relationship with him? And that's what salvation, and that's where salvation begins, chapters 4 through 5. And then 6 through 8, he deals with, and this is a kind of religious word, with sanctification. And if you don't like that word here, let me give you a simple word, with spirituality. What does it mean to really be spiritual? Now, we live in a culture now, it's interesting enough, uh, talks a lot about spirituality. Uh, even outside the church. Well, I'm not really a person who, who's in a traditional religion, organized faith, but I, I consider myself a spiritual person. I, I, I'd like to interview them. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, they say that. But Paul gets very plain. What does it mean to be spiritual? Or to use a New Testament, what does it mean to be sanctified? Sanctification. And then from there, he goes on in chapters 9 through 11. Some say that's kind of parenthesis in the book. He talks about the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is simply a statement that God is in control. And all we have to do is think about the things that have happened recently in our nation and around the world. We cannot handle whatever happens in nature. We can't predict it completely. And once it happens, we cannot control it. And we need to understand that there is someone who holds this universe in his hands. And that's God, the sovereignty of God. And then in chapters 12 through 16, we have a section dealing with the service. God calls us, now that we're saved, to have the privilege of serving. So that's a way to ha- get a hand on the book. It's, it's all about sin, about salvation, about sanctification, about sovereignty, and about service. So with a few key words, you can kind of get a hand on what this big book is all about. Well, this morning we want to begin with a big idea. That was the big picture. Well, what's the big idea? Well, the big idea, and I've already mentioned it, it, it's all about sin. And Paul wants us to understand that if we're going to understand why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel, which is interesting enough. He, he, he had every right to be ashamed of the gospel from a human perspective. If you read his story, he got run out of town many, many times because he preached the gospel. It was not necessarily a, a popular message every, every place he went. He, he got laughed at. He got ridiculed. He got beaten. He got imprisoned. And after a while, I said, you know, this ain't working. <laughs> this, this is not for me. Let somebody else do this for a while. But he wasn't ashamed because in the midst of all the, the persecution and all the problems presenting that gospel gave him. It wasn't just he, he received the sufferings of this world that we all do, but it was in direct relationship because he was bold about the gospel. He says, the reason I'm not ashamed because I've seen the power of it to change lives. And so this morning, what we, we want to kind of take a glimpse of that this, as we look at what he says to us. And we're only going to touch the, the surface of it. But hopefully you, as I, this past week was just, humbled by the reality of sin. First truth, big, first big truth. The gospel is necessary because of sin. And I chose that word necessary because sometimes we think about faith, it, particularly if we hear people talk about it uh, out in the community, and uh, you know, sometimes they hear it within the church environment as well. Well, you know, uh, this works for me. It might not work for you, but um, you know, whatever, whatever's good. Paul did not address it that way. All of the New Testament writers, Jesus did not present it that way. The gospel is is not just a good thing. It's not just a helpful thing. It's not just positive for some people. It's necessary. 
Because of our sin, we are under the judgment wrath of God. And so this next statement, it kind of puts it in perspective. The bad news, sin's condemnation, must be understood before the good news, salvation, can be valued and believed. You see, we ought to run into the arms of Jesus, not kind of, well, I'm thinking about it, I might just decide to go that path, it, it would be something that might be helpful, might bring harmony in my home, or you know, people who are my friends might like it if I did it. If we understand the doctrine of sin, we would run desperately, just crying out for mercy. From a God who's not only loving, but righteous and holy. The bad news, we are under the judgment of God because of our sin. We deserve His wrath. Must be understood, not only at the point of salvation, crossing the line by faith into the hands of Jesus, but every Every day we live for Him. Living in light, as we often say around, that we have gotten much better than we deserve. And we need to live a life of gratefulness and thankfulness to God who, because of His great love, became, as He says in Romans 3, not only the justifier, but He's just and justifier. Because If he did not deal with sin in a righteous way, he would not be righteous. And so the punishment we deserve was placed upon Jesus. Well, let's look at the text this morning. Let's look at some things concerning sin. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. And let me make the point and then let's see it out of the text. Concerning sin, Romans teaches that the wrath of God is against all who sinfully suppress the truth which is knowable about God. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the idea of suppression is holding down that which is evident. If you ever try to submerge a blown-up beach toy either in, in a pool or in the ocean, and you try to push it down. And you have to put a lot of energy to keep that underneath the water, don't you? Because it all wants to come up. And what he's saying here is people talk about God, and they think, well, if God would make himself much more evident, I'd believe in him. If I could just see God, if I could just talk about God, talk to God personally, then I'd believe. And Paul is saying very bluntly, look it, you're already suppressing, holding down that which is evident about God. With everything you have, you're suppressing the truth about who he is. And because that the wrath of God is revealed and it's from heaven against all who do that. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts 
were darkened. Whether we like this message or not, the Bible says that the wrath of God is against all those who are living in ungodliness and unrighteousness before Him. You know, Romans uh, speaks very plainly about sin. And here the sin is knowing the truth about God, what we can know about it, with our conscience and within the nature around us. That which has been created speaks about a creator. That which has design speaks about a designer. That which we see as powerful leads to the act of someone who must be guiding this power. And just inherit within everyone's heart and mind that there has to be some standard of that which is right or that which is wrong. And in about every culture in the world, historically, there have been certain things that have always been right and that which has always been wrong. And where does that come from? Morality has to come from some moral foundation. And what God is saying here, everyone is without excuse. Essentially, this past week, I was... Yahoo News had a story about a special speaker at Northwood High School. I don't know if you saw that this week. Atheist tells high schoolers, God is evil. And really, when you get down to it, at least here's a person to try to say, well, you know, I don't believe I'm evil, but I think there is someone evil in this universe, and it's God. Which is interesting for an atheist to say that, because why would you say someone is evil when you don't even believe that someone exists? But that's a whole other discussion uh, to uh, <laughs> deal with. But uh, here, here's how the article went. That, that a county has so uncritically embraced in God we trust, and Irvine Orange County is somewhat a conservative uh, place in our nation. Uh, in many of its city council members would also generate an atheist club. In other words, he's surprised that this person was brought on campus. At one of his showcase public high schools, seems incongruous. Doubly so that Gleason, part of the coalition behind the Don't Believe in God, You're Not Alone. Have you seen any of those uh, billboards in, in, uh, on Beach Boulevard? Would be allowed to cast his pagan shadow on campus. I thought our publicly-owned facilities were only accessible to pro-religious messages. He's kind of being a little sarcastic here. Gleason, age 56, isn't just a non-believer. He thinks religion is actually bad. You will never see an atheist suicide bomber, he says. But lest you think he picks on Muslims, he told the students that if they were going to hedge their bets, they should pick Islam because it has the least made, least worst hell. In other words... Uh, the Muslim faith, the hell's not quite as hot as the Christian uh, hell, right? Gleason, who grew up in Anaheim and went to church to please his parents, focused mostly on the religion of his youth, asserting the God of the Bible is actually evil. What do we say to people who believe that, that God is the source of all the evil that has ever happened in this world? Well, you have two choices. You can believe either God is the source of evil or man is the source of evil. And the Bible says very plainly that people suppress the truth about unrighteousness. Just think for a moment. You know, sometimes what we do is, is we, we will rant about God. 
And it happens within our own hearts as well sometimes when bad things happen to us. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And we just rant upon it. And we spend little time thinking about our response to him. You know, even within our own culture, the degree of a particular crime is not only defined by that which is done, but who it's done to. For instance, let's say um, you came up to me and slapped me in my face. Now, because I'm so spiritual, I would turn the other cheek, particularly if you were a lot bigger than me, all right? But if you were smaller than me, I might not resist the temptation, all right? But there's not a whole lot that would happen to you if you slapped me in my face, okay, even if we got in a little bit of tussle. But let's say you went out on the street and there was a, a person who was dressed in blue and had a badge on and a gun, and you proceeded to slap him in his face. <laughs> what would happen to you then? A little bit more. How about somehow you were able to get close enough to the present and you slapped him in his face? What would happen to you? All of a sudden you'd be in prison. How about if you lived in another country and you slapped a, a king in his face? You'd be executed. See, what we do is we slap God in his face and we think nothing of it. But the crime is not only significant in terms of what is done, but who it is done to. And what we have done is we have, we have stuck our fist at God when we should be humbling ourselves at God. What, what is the greatest commandment in all the Scriptures? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me ask you if somehow you're, you're struggling with maybe the gravity of your sin. Have you ever somehow broken that commandment where sometimes during the day you don't love Him more than anything else in this world? We have repeatedly, repeatedly, broken the greatest commandment in all the world. We have been haters of God rather than lovers of God. You know, thinking on a personal basis, those of you and many in our church fellowship have had children born just recently in the last couple of years. There is nothing more precious in your home than your child. But as a parent who've had most of our children now almost fully grown, they do grow up, all right? And there are different challenges when they're little and when they're kind of in between and they're teenagers or whatever. But, and we've loved our kids in all the stages. But, but let's say, and I, and I pray this doesn't happen to you, but let's say later on as they grow up, they come to the point maybe in their teenage years and they look at you and say, you're not my parent. I don't care whether you're their blood parent, your foster parent, or adoptive parent, but let's say after all the evil, all the sacrifices, all the things you've done for them, and, and then what you do and say, they say to you, you're not my parent. You, you, haven't, you, haven't, you haven't brought me into life. You haven't provided for me. It was that, that person right over there that, that you've never met. That's the person who did that. Now, what would that do to you? It would crush you. It would just crush you. And, and, and let's say they took to the link where they said, and right now I'm never going to live with you again. I'm never going to talk with you. I'm never going to uh, spend any time. I'm just, you're not my parent. I don't believe you're my parent. And I'm just going to live with that other family. Well, assuming you couldn't do anything legally, what could you do? You just have to allow that child to leave. It would crush you. And they would experience the consequences of their actions. 
Now, that analogy breaks down in some, in some ways, but I want you to understand, that's what we've done with God. He is the one who's created us. He is the one who sent his son to die for us, and we are saying, that's not true, and I want to go my own way. And eventually, the wrath of God will be demonstrated on that person's life who chooses to go his own way. Where are you in relationship with God? Are you suppressing the truth about Him? Or are you running to find out the truth about Him? Paul writes, The wrath of God will be upon all those who suppress the truth about that which is knowable about God. But he goes on. And in Romans 1, 26-32, Romans teaches that sin can manifest itself in a multitude of acts of destructible behavior. Look at Romans 1, 26-32. And we're going to look at this a little bit more in our life groups this week. But let's just read it quickly. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lusts for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And we're not going to speak about that in any depth, but that type of choice to fall into that kind of behavior is self-destructive. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. Now we could stop right there and say, well, that's, that's describing people not like me, but he goes on. Strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, you ever said anything behind someone else's back that wasn't exactly a compliment? Haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And we could spend some time describing those type of common behaviors among ourselves. And these are the sins that the wrath of God is deserving to come upon. Not giving mercy when mercy is asked for. Not being responsive to parents as they give leadership in the home. Holding on to a grudge, unforgiving. Every time I've been in a group setting where we could have feedback, and just asking, is there anyone here, and maybe in an anonymous way, on a piece of paper, whatever it might be, what could acknowledge that there's someone right now that you are holding on to a grudge against? There's something, a barrier between you and them that you have been unwilling to let go of, to forgive. And the percentage would be so high, even in a group like this, this morning. And the list of things that, that God hates in the midst of the murderous descriptions, the, the sexual lifestyles that are destructive, he speaks about something so common as to having an unforgiving heart. 
But if you look at this theme that's so re- repeated in Scripture, even Jesus, said, in the context of the Lord's Prayer, said, unless you're willing to forgive others, why would you expect God to forgive you? Because when God invades a heart, He changes a heart. And though we always obey Him imperfectly, it should be the passion of our lives to follow after what He has called us to be. And when we hold on to the sin as believers for that which Christ died for, we're putting shame on His work on the cross. And when somehow we look at our sin in such an insignificant way compared to other people's sin, See, if we play the comparison game, we can always find somebody that looks worse than us. But if you look an honest look at the Scripture, that all of us, as the Bible says, even our righteousness is filthy rags before a holy God. See, see the good news will never be valued and believed in until the bad news is understood. And that's true as we take the first step of faith, but it's, but it's true as we take every step of faith. That every day we, we live under the grace of God better than we deserve. What is it about sin? Romans teaches that the wrath of God is against all who sinfully suppress the truth, which is noble about God. Romans teaches that sin can manifest itself in a multitude of, of acts of destructive behavior unforgiveness is such an offense to God, but how does it relate to relationships? It destroys them. And then finally this morning, Romans teaches that we all sin when we value anything more than we value God, His glory. Look at Romans 3.23, probably the most famous verse in in the Scripture concerning the sin that we are under. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. See, what we need to understand is, is even as, and we were sharing this in our life group this past week, how do, you, how do you try to convince people that they don't quite measure up, that there is such a thing as sin? Well, just ask them the question, well, whatever standard, the standards that you have, are you able to live up to those? I don't think any honest person would say, no, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't live up to the standards I want to set. I mean, let's look at New Year's resolutions. How many ever fulfill their New Year's resolutions made every year? And those are usually simplistic. But if you can't live up to your standards, how about just raise the bar a little bit? Can you live up to God's standards? And and God's greatest standards is to live to honor Him, to show Him and His reality to others. And the the standard's perfection. It's not not a, a bell curve here. It's not even a percent where you can get in the 90 percentile. It has to be complete obedience. And because of that, we fall short. What's the point this morning? What is it you believe about your sin? Of course, the point for me, what, what do I believe about my sin? And, and when I encounter my sin, do I run to God or do I run away from rationalizing my attitude and my actions? The application this morning is is very simple. For some of you, you have never made that first step toward Jesus, which is, God, I I need your complete and full pardon for all the evil that I have done. Maybe the evil other people haven't seen, but but everything that transgressed your laws, your commandments, 
valuing what you value. I need your complete pardon. And for those who are at that point, you've got to run to him, admitting your need and then turning from that which is heinous to God, from that which is sin. And then just believing, believing that Jesus fully paid the penalty for your sin and rose again to demonstrate the reality of the cross. And then commit. Commit to follow Jesus as your Lord, as the leader of your life, as your God, and the rescuer or Savior from your sin. And that can be done by simply telling Him the, the desires of your heart, that that's what you want and desperately need from Him. And for those who have already made that step of faith, it's the reality of saying, God, I don't ever want to take sin lightly in my life. I want to run to you when I do anything in attitude or action that displeases you, that saddens your heart. Help me to always live in light of the gospel that you want to change me daily as you confront me with what is wrong so that you might be able to make it right in my life. Let's pray. Father, this morning I want to pray for those who maybe have never made that first step. And Father, they can just pray this prayer in their heart to you. It's not the prayer that saves them, it's the expression of faith. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I I admit my need and I no longer want to live in that which is wrong in your sight. I believe that your son Jesus, when he was on the cross, paid the penalty for my sin and rose again. Right now, I commit myself to you to follow you as my Lord and my Savior and my God. And when we pray that prayer and really meet it, then God will answer that prayer and invade our heart with His Son. And Father, for us who have known you for, whether it be a day or for a week or a month or years, Father, we, we want to express how grateful we are for your daily forgiveness of sin. And Father, help us to be people that celebrate the victory that was won, but also are are challenged by the, the steps that still need to be made to be faithful to you. Help us to live for your glory, to let people see Jesus in us because we are humbled by your grace and filled with joy because of your goodness. As we continue to worship, and if there are those here today that would like to pray with another, we invite them to come as we worship through giving, as we worship through praise. Father, might you be honored by what we say to you, what we express to you, and what we commit to live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.